0: met my wife, uh, Bailey. If you know anything about her, you know that Harry Potter is one of her favorite books, one of her favorite book series. Uh, She's read each one of those books multiple times, uh, and one of our family traditions is actually re-watching the movies uh, during the fall, during the fall season. But if you've ever read Harry Potter, you know that uh, in the first book, Harry doesn't actually know that he's a wizard, right? One day, Harry gets an envelope uh, and he uh, gets an acceptance letter from Hogwarts. And it turns out that Hogwarts is a school for wizards. But in trying to keep the truth from him, his uncle Vernon takes the letter and keeps him from reading it. But Hogwarts doesn't give up easily. They, They keep sending Harry letters. The next day, Harry gets another letter. The following day, he gets Twelve. Harry's Uncle Vernon is determined for Harry not to find out the truth, so he keeps hiding the letters. Eventually, he takes the whole family on a family vacation in order to keep Harry from reading these letters. But the letters keep coming. They even start magically coming in through every crack of the house, hundreds of letters. But still determined, Uncle Vernon is still somehow able to keep Harry from reading these letters. Until one night, a giant... Name Hagrid, the keeper of the keys and grounds at Hogwarts, personally visits Harry to deliver the message. Harry is a wizard, and he's been accepted to Hogwarts. And this whole debacle with the acceptance letters, it's similar to what we see in our parable tonight from Luke chapter 16. Because Hogwarts wasn't going to settle for Harry just not Getting the message. So after multiple attempts were suppressed, they they sent a person, a physical, undeniable messenger. And I, I say that it's similar because the main idea I want us, us to see from this parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16 is this: since God has revealed Himself to us in sending His Son, we must believe the one. He sent. I'll say that again for those of you who want to take notes. Since God has revealed Himself to us in sending His Son, we must believe the one He sent. And I've really highlighted two things from tonight's text that we will do if we truly believe. The first thing that we'll do is show others the grace we've been shown. And the second thing that we'll do is hear and obey God's greatest messenger. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and continue turning there to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in verses 19 through 31. So Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Read along as I read. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this parable of Jesus. I pray that through it, you would convict, you would encourage, you would save and you would preserve. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we come to Luke chapter 16, verse 19, we we find the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And remember the the definition of parables from Snodgrass last week. He's he's a theologian, a great name there. A parable is an expanded analogy used to convince and persuade. And while there is actually a little bit of debate about our text tonight, whether it's a parable or, or if Jesus is telling a story of something that happened, I, I think it's clear that this is a parable. There's not time to get into all the arguments, but I think it's clear that this is a parable. So I think it's best to understand that the characters and the situations described here are, are not from events that actually happen, but they're a story Jesus tells to convince and persuade. Verses 19 through 21, they kind of set the scene and and introduce the characters of this parable. There's a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And the rich man, not, not only is he described as being rich, but we're given descriptive details. We're told that he is feasting sumptuously every day and is clothed in purple and fine linen. Jesus goes through great lengths to show us that this man is not only rich, but is very wealthy. Not only that, he uses his money to overindulge himself. Contrast that with Lazarus, described as a poor man. And again, Lazarus is not only described as poor, but Jesus paints the picture for us. He tells us this Lazarus lays at the rich man's gate, covered in sores, longing for scraps from the table. And to add insult to injury, dogs come and lick his sores. And so after this scene is set here, Jesus tells us that both of these men eventually die, and the rich man goes to Hades or or hell, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's side in heaven. And so after this description of their eternal destinations, we have the rich man's first request. Being tormented in hell, the rich man asks Abraham if Lazarus can dip the end of his finger in water to cool the rich man's tongue. And Abraham's answer to this request is no. And he gives two explanations. For starters, Abraham says that the rich man got his good things in his life. And Lazarus got his bad things. Now they're switched. It's almost as if Abraham is saying, you know, fair is fair. He got his bad things, you got your good things, now it's switched. But the second reason that Abraham gives is that it's metaphysically impossible, since there's a great chasm fixed between them. And so when we come to this point in the story, it's important that we, we stop here, because there are several things going on so far in this parable. First, and I think obvious, it's probably the first thing that you notice is the scathing rebuke Jesus gives to those who are rich lovers of money. Because again, not only is the rich man described as rich, but his extravagance and overindulgence is described in great length. He's clothed in fine clothes, feasts sumptuously every day. And he lives this way with a beggar at his gate without giving one scrap to him. And although this scathing rebuke is meant for anyone who would be a rich lover of money, it's likely that Jesus is speaking largely to and about the Pharisees here. Because if you'll notice in your Bibles, the the parable right before this one is is often called the parable of the dishonest manager. It's, It's all about the love of money. And Jesus actually concludes it with these famous words. No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And right after that parable... Luke reports in verse 14 that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And so we, we can't miss Jesus' critique of the rich lovers of money here. Because in this parable, the rich man goes to hell. And you're meant to feel the weight of that. We should all be rightly concerned and watchful over our relationship with money and extravagance. However, as much as I want you to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here about the love of money, we we do need to recognize that simply being rich is not a sin. It doesn't automatically send you to hell. How do we know this? Well, because there were rich Christians, even in the earliest periods of the church. This is why Paul wrote things like this in the letter to Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There were those that were rich in this present age who were Christians. They received instruction. And after Jesus dies, before the resurrection, we actually find out that one of his disciples was rich. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Joseph is the one whose tomb Jesus laid in, likely could afford a tomb like that because he was wealthy. So How do we understand this parable then? It's not just about being rich. What is the point? We have to realize that it's not simply the the riches that this man is rebuked for, but rather it's the cold, graceless, lack of sympathy and love of money that the rich man displays in this parable that that Jesus is condemning. The man feasts every day, but won't give Lazarus one scrap. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 27, a, a Canaanite woman seeking to convince Jesus to heal her, a Gentile, makes this argument to Jesus, saying, Yes, Lord. Previously, Jesus had told her that he had come only for the nation of Israel first he had to do his ministry among the Jewish people first. Then he would move to the Gentiles. And she responds and makes this argument. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So it's almost as if Lazarus is treated with less worth and dignity than the most disgusting animal in Israel. Dogs weren't viewed as they're viewed in our culture. They were unclean. So Lazarus is treated with less worth and dignity than a dog. And this is the real problem that Jesus has with the lovers of money. They serve money instead of God. And it often leads them to strip people of their God-given dignity and worth, strip them of the fact that they are made in the image of God. And when you consider Abraham's first response to the rich man's first request, it almost reflects a sort of pharisaical attitude, almost ironically. It's as if maybe the rich man felt he didn't owe Lazarus anything. So when the rich man asks for just a finger to be dipped in water to cool his tongue, which, by the way, mirrors the scrap that Lazarus is begging for, the answer is... Simple no. Fair is fair. In this great reversal, just like we see all throughout Luke's gospel, the first become last, and the last become first. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. The point is not just the money. It's not just The riches, the point is the lack of grace, the lack of mercy, the the coldness with which the rich man treats Lazarus, made even worse by his own extravagance. When I think about this lack of grace, this lack of mercy, sadly, I, I remember a story from my own life. A couple of years ago, I ordered a Bible from Amazon. For some reason, instead of arriving in two days, like my prime membership guaranteed, somehow got lost in transit. So after a couple of days of no sign of this, this Bible, I, I started to get frustrated. I, I was really excited to get this Bible, but it was just out there, lost, floating somewhere. I got really frustrated, though, whenever the tracking said that it was delivered, even though I never got it. So I called Amazon. While I didn't scream or or blow my top, I was very clearly agitated, irritated, terse even, kind of like the cheesecake incident of 2022. And I'll never forget the poor lady on the phone, she's trying to help me with my order. And uh, she says, okay, so, so what was the item? And in my shame and instant conviction, I just had to sheepishly answer, it's a Bible. There I was, all irritated, frustrated, taking out my frustration with a stranger on the phone over a Bible. The worst part about the whole thing is I was actually in a customer service call center job at the time. I should have been able to understand taking the brunt of angry customers when everything that happened had nothing to do with you. And what my graceless response really showed in that moment was that I cared more about things than people. And this kind of attitude is exactly what Jesus is condemning here. If we truly believe, we will show other people the grace that we've been shown. You might ask, though, how does this apply to you? College student, probably don't have much money in the first place. Eating sumptuously for you is probably all you can eat at the cafe on Sundays. Maybe uh, an expensive night at Taco Bell. How do you practically apply a story rebuking the love of money and coldness towards those in need? Well, one way is to remember it's not about how much you have, but it's what you do with what you have and how that reflects what's going on in your heart. Let me just ask you, do do you joyously and sacrificially give to any church anywhere at all? I'm not asking if you're not a Christian, don't worry about that question. But if you are a Christian, you're actually called to do that in some way, some shape or form. Maybe you can even expand that. Maybe you can find a charity to give to or serve. Passages like these are one of the reasons that our church here, First Baptist Church at Eagle Point, has a food pantry ministry called For the City. We're called to show grace and mercy to those in need. Maybe that's something that you could think through volunteering for. Maybe you could actually give your time or give food. But a good diagnostic question to ask when applying a text like this is, what are you overflowing with? What are you overflowing with? Whether it's time or money or a listening ear, kindness, patience, friendship, give some of it away. Don't don't just selfishly take and take and consume and consume. Find ways to give away. What are you overflowing with? It it is kind of interesting, though, because even though Christians are often accused of not truly caring about the poor, much of our understanding of charity and the importance of it, as, at least as we know it in the West, it, it actually began with Christ's followers. In Tom Holland's book, Dominion, a book outlining the influence of Christianity on the world, he describes the Greek and Roman cultures that Christians often found themselves in as anti-charity. They often thought that helping the poor would somehow encourage poverty. And it was actually Christians who paved the way for charities by doing things like taking up offerings for orphans, for widows, and the imprisoned. And they did it all in obedience to the words and examples of Christ their Savior. That tradition actually continues today. Because in an article researching religious and Christian giving, Carl Zein's master on philo- Philanthropy Roundtable shows that philanthropic studies show that people with a religious affiliation give away several times as much every year as other Americans. And he shows that they, they give away more than everyone else on average, not just to religious organizations, but when you look at charity and money given to secular organizations, People who attend church regularly actually give more than those who don't. So don't let anyone tell you that Christians aren't generous. They they only care about power. They don't care about the poor. Because it's likely that the only reason that a person saying that values charity at all is because of the lasting Christian influence on the West. But not only that, we, we should see that this lack of grace not only applies to physical needs and literal poverty, But it also applies to our attitudes about people in general, even as it relates to spiritual condition. What do I mean? Well, how do you view people who are lost and dead in their sin? Maybe spiritually, you're like the rich man. You have spiritual riches in Christ. You see that poor man at the gate, licked by dogs. Do you look down your nose at them and think, unclean sinners? Or do you have a gracious heart? How do you respond when lost people describe their sinfulness to you, when they boast of their sinfulness, when they cuss around you, talk about that party, how high or drunk they got? Do you have pity or do you have judgment? Christians are called to be stewards of grace and mercy because of the grace and mercy we have been shown. An ungracious heart is not a Christian heart. If we truly believe, we will show others the grace we've been shown. Not only do I want us to see that if we truly believe, we will show others the grace we've been shown. I also want us to see that if we truly believe, we will hear and obey God's greatest messenger. What do I mean by that? Well, if we keep going in Jesus's parable here, we, we see a second request from the rich man. Understanding that he won't be comforted, he seeks to see his family spared from this place. So he asks Abraham for Lazarus to be sent to his father's house to warn his brothers. And what does Abraham say? He says that they have Moses and the prophets. They should hear them. And of course, what Abraham means is that they have the Old Testament scriptures. They have the Bible. But the rich man insists saying that if someone were to come back from the dead, his family would repent and be saved. And in the crescendoing climax of the parable, Abraham has this response saying, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So so what's happening here? What's going on here? Well, for starters, Jesus is pointing out And he's pointing to the fact that no matter how great the sign or the wonder or the miracle that's performed, it does not guarantee that someone will believe the messengers of God. I mean, let's just, if we take a tour through the Old Testament, we would find that with the, what the messengers of God did when they were sent by God, unbelief abounded. Think of Moses for a moment. The Egyptians didn't believe until the very last plague, and even then they still chased Israel till they were swallowed up by the sea. But it wasn't just the Egyptians, because even after Moses delivers the people of God from Egypt, it wasn't long before they began grumbling in the desert. And while Moses is on the mountaintop receiving the very Ten Commandments from God, When the people are left alone, just for a short amount of time, they build a golden calf and begin worshiping it. And the whole Old Testament is this seesaw back and forth between Israel turning its back on God, breaking the covenant, worshiping idols, and God sending prophets to the people of Israel who were largely ignored, sometimes killed. And the culmination of this theme of the office of prophet in Israel is Jesus. Because after sending prophet, after prophet, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus comes down to bear witness himself to the will of God. And what does Israel do with their Messiah sent from God? They reject him, deliver him up to be crucified, just like all of the other Prophets led mostly by the religious leaders, like the Pharisees. And what Jesus is saying here about how signs and wonders are often ignored, it's similar to what He said in Matthew 12:38. Listen to what happens here. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, "Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you." But he answered them, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign." But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Signs and wonders do not alone produce faith. You must be born again. Because if you, if you haven't caught the irony here in this text, the last line in this parable points us to the fact that even though Jesus, the prophet of God who did many signs and miracles, his greatest sign is that he will rise from the grave after being put to death. So he rises from the grave and many people, including many in Israel, still won't believe. And so what's happening here is that this this coldness, this love of money, this mercilessness to the needy, it it is condemnable, but it actually stems from unbelief. And not believing in God's greatest messenger, God the Son himself, is the root of the evil that we see in this world. Well, We think this parable is about money, and, and it is a little bit. But it's about more than that. It's about unbelief. Believe in the messenger that God sent. This idea, it kind of reminds me of of one of my favorite sitcoms of the 90s. Seinfeld, the show Better Than Friends. If you've never seen Seinfeld, it's basically about four friends living in New York City. They're too immature to commit to any love interest or confront any of the relational problems of their life. So in this one episode, Kramer, Jerry's next door neighbor, he invites Jerry and Elaine to dinner to meet his new girlfriend. The only problem is Kramer's girlfriend is what they call a low talker. Everything she says is so low and so quiet that Jerry and Elaine can't understand at all what she's saying. So instead of addressing the situation, they both just nod and agree anytime she says anything, even though they can't understand what she's saying. And as it turns out, Jerry unknowingly agrees to wear the puffy shirt designed by Kramer's girlfriend, the low talker, on the Today Show the next morning, all because he couldn't hear or understand the low talker. And while Jerry agrees to do something without understanding what he's agreeing to, the same is not true of us, because God isn't a low talker. He speaks loud and clear. God speaks loud and clear and has spoken to us in his son. But what does that mean for you right now? Maybe you have heard. Maybe you have believed. Maybe you are a Christian. You've trusted in the one sent by God. You've turned from a lifestyle of sin. What does this mean for you? The first thing I would say is continue to hear and obey. The most powerful means that God has for your spiritual maturity is His Word. His Word read, the Word preached, the Word sung. So often we want to focus on everything except for the regular ways that God has prescribed to grow us. You don't need the most clever preacher. You don't need the most hyped up worship experience. You don't need the most influential friends. You need the Word of God day in and day out. You need to try to obey what you hear. That's how you draw near to God. But this also relates to how we fight against sin in our everyday lives because so often we try to manufacture our own obedience. We try to fight sin all in our own willpower. But sometimes the most effective way to root out sin in our lives is by focusing on knowing and believing God. Because if unbelief is the root of so many of the sins we struggle with in our lives, going deeper into belief is the cure. For for example, instead of trying to fight lust by merely creating more and more accountability and systems and rules and gritting your teeth and bearing it, Are you also going deeper and growing in your love and enjoyment of God? Going deeper and believing what he says about himself and the true destructive nature of sin? What about when you're tempted towards jealousy or anger? Do you stop and consider and believe what God has said about the goodness that he has shown you in your life? The goodness that leads to contentment, peace, and forgiveness? because ultimately, listen, disobedience is the fruit of unbelief. But we should also read a text like this and not miss the importance of the reality of heaven and hell. The rich man wants to warn his family about hell once he's there, but it's too late. And while you you as a believer, you won't ever be motivated towards evangelism by your presence in hell, but you should be motivated by the reality of hell to share the gospel now, to understand the gospel and find ways to naturally bring it up. People will spend eternity there. What what are you doing to pursue those like God pursued you? Listen, this place, this ministry, it doesn't exist as a place for you to escape the world. It exists is a place to equip and help you be on mission for the kingdom of God at school, at work, wherever you find yourself. He has spoken to us by his son. The question is, will we hear and obey the greatest messenger God has ever sent? Or will we be like those who seek another sign, who hearing they don't hear and seeing they don't see? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from Jesus, this word that is like a double-edged sword that cuts through flesh and bone. Father, would you bind us up? Would you cause us to be obedient in ways that might even seem miraculous to us, God? Would you not leave us in a place of conviction, but would you help us press in? Would you help us believe more? Would you help us trust more? Would you help us, God? We pray and ask all these things in your mighty, marvelous name. Amen.